I'm Adam Riley, and I'm joined, as I often am, by Peter Kadzis. Peter, what's going on? I'm just happy to be here, and <laughs> some of the snow is melting. Yes, happy March. If you insist. Right, so, Peter, you will remember that Baker's perceived management skills were a big reason that he beat Martha Coakley last November. They have been put to the test in a big way in his first couple of months, uh, what with the budget gap of $750 million and the weather and the MBTA kind of breaking down for the you know several weeks. So what has struck you, if anything, about his management style? Hmm. From WGBH in Boston, this is The Scrum. It's a podcast where we talk about politics and sometimes political media here in Massachusetts and beyond. So I wanted to get a sense of what specifically it means to manage the way Charlie Baker does, because I think even though it's a perceived strength of the governor's, a lot of people don't really know what it does in fact mean to manage like Charlie Baker does. So I went over to the State House last week to ask him. Now, where did you interview? Did you go to the gold-plated office or did you go to the one by the curb? <laughs> we, we were in the little office, I guess we can call it, the, the office that he earned some plaudits for taking, the, the smaller office than the one that uh, Governor Patrick spent his time doing business in, which I got to say is not really that small. Um, I think it was bigger than the office that you had back at the Phoenix. Uh, I bet were, it was a lot neater. Though. It was much, much neater. And there were not the piles of books that defined your office at the Phoenix. Okay, just I, I'm sidetracking you. So before we got to management, I had to ask Governor Baker a burning question that's been on my mind for a while, namely why he isn't wearing that natty Mima vest that Governor Patrick used to wear in times of crisis. There is a theory making the rounds on Twitter right now that Governor Baker is responsible for our hellish winter because he's not wearing the Mima vest and the snow gods are angry. So I asked him, why won't you wear the vest? Uh, I just, I generally speaking, don't wear a lot of the symbolic stuff at all. I mean, I wore my clothing um, because, first of all, it's mine and it fits. And secondly, um, I'm just not a big believer in, in that sort of thing. And um, the other theories, by the way, one person uh, who is a supporter of mine who tried to talk me out of running for governor in 14 thinks he's responsible for it because he told me that hell would freeze over before Massachusetts elected a Republican governor. What he didn't realize is it wasn't hell that was going to freeze over. It was the Commonwealth. And the other one was, uh, and this one I hear from my staff all the time, was on the day we announced the size of the fiscal 15 budget deficit, one of the folks in the media asked me, whether we thought we had enough money for snow and ice removal. And I looked out the window and I said, it's 40 degrees out and there's not any snow on the ground. I think we're going to be fine with respect to snow and ice. And a lot of people think that was the real driver behind it. But in the end, I think the real driver behind it was Mother Nature just had other plans. So after we got the Mima vest out of the way, we turned to the topic at hand, namely, what does it mean to manage the way that Charlie Baker manages? I asked the governor to pick out one or two things from his first several weeks as governor and use them as case studies. I'm a big believer that people are policy. I've said that a million times. Um, and uh, I think we did a really good job when we were asking people to serve in our administration. And by the way, getting them to say yes, which is the other half of the conversation that people forget about. 
I think we did a really great job of finding people who are subject matter experts, have experience in their field, and bring a lot of both public and private sector chops to the table with respect to the issues we're interested in working on. So, you know, who you bring into these roles and, and the people you uh, you surround yourself with say a lot about what kind of manager you are. And um, I would describe my management team as... Um, very high level and very strong and people who have tons of personality and lots of opinions and are going to bring that to the table and they have and they do and they will. I would hope most of them would say that, um, and I've known a lot of them for years, that I'm a good listener, um, that I don't jump to conclusions. I give people a chance to have it out and have at it. And in the end, try and make what ultimately is the best decision based on the best information that's available. In terms of something that's happened more recently, I guess what I would say is the I'm not afraid to um, to make adjustments um, if we need to. I think one of the big adjustments we made after the first time we met with the folks at the T was to basically send several people from my senior staff down there. We didn't have them. We didn't have the T come up here. We sent our people down there um, to spend a better part of the past few weeks working down there, you know, hand in glove with the folks at the T to try and turn that 30-day turnaround, which was the original schedule people talked about to get it back up and operating into something that was more like a week. Um, and I think the T worked incredibly hard on that. I think our folks worked incredibly hard, and, and I think they did a great job collaborating uh, to pursue that. Um, why was it important to send your staff down there as opposed to having people from the T come up here? Because in the end, the action is down at the T, and, um, and the T is an independent authority that's managed and overseen by an independent board. And, uh, and, our, and our view on this was we needed to be invited in. And one way to be invited in is to go see them um, at their place. And that was why the first meeting was down there. We went down there and um, toured the operations center and, and met with senior management and um, sort of established kind of the baseline of a of a relationship and a conversation. And frankly, I just think when you get into a situation like that, you're always better off um, not pulling the operating people away from uh, where they're supposed to be um, because they really need to be there. And, uh, and, and my view was if we were going to be trying to pull in assets, the National Guard, you know, snowplows, whatever it happened to be, our ability to do that from there, you know, at the same time we were having a conversation yeah. with them about other stuff was just easier and, and, and more effective. And I think, I think that turned out to be true. As you know better than me, some people have criticized you are not communicating with Beverly Scott before that infamous, I shouldn't say infamous because that implies judgment, before that Thursday meeting. now classic yeah. press conference, right, before her press conference, before yeah. that Thursday meeting. Um, I know you've said in retrospect, you should have talked to her. Why initially did you not speak with her? And in, in, you know, if you had it to do over again, um, what might you do differently? Well, again, it's an independent authority yeah. that's overseen by an independent board. You know, I have one seat on it, Stephanie Pollack, the Secretary of Transportation. And, and I was talking to Stephanie two or three times a day, and I know she was talking to, to Bev and to the other people at the T um, every day as well. And, um, and that was, you know, sort of the that was the chain of command. And, um, and I, I think in some, and, and by the way, the T came through the first storm in relatively okay shape. I mean, after the first storm, we really didn't get a lot of, you know, 
a lot of calls or a lot of complaints because constituent services wasn't dealing with a lot of stuff from the T. So, so it didn't seem to me like there was, you know, a fire burning there, for lack of a better way of putting it. Then the second storm came through, and, um, and that was sort of when, to really use a really bad metaphor, the wheels started to come off. And, uh, and at that point in time, um, we just had some miscommunications with them about a variety of things. And rather than just sort of accepting the miscommunication, it might have made sense at that point to just go down there. And we did schedule the visit. It just took us a few days to get it to work on the calendars. And, uh, and as I said, I, I, um, you know, people have said to me, do you regret, you know, what do you regret? And the easy answer for a politician is I regret nothing and I look forward, which would be an easy answer to give to you on a question like that and to give others. But, um, you know, having thought about it a little, I wish I'd reached out a little sooner. Because, frankly, the collaboration so far has been pretty effective. Now, Peter, I don't know about you, but that expression of regret actually sounded pretty sincere to me. What did you think? It struck me as A, sincere, B, candid, and C, most important of all, self-aware. He's aware of how others perceive him. All right. So then after that exchange, we got back to the question of how the governor decides who he is going to put in positions of power around him. Uh, most of that, what I would describe as, um, as phone calls. I mean, it was one of those things where you, you, know, you throw the penny in the river and the penny in the ocean and the, the waves sort of emanate out from where you throw it in. I mean, my view on this stuff most of the time is if you have to hire, this actually is probably back to sort of a general management principle, which is if you, have to, if you expect people to make very quick decisions in a very short period of time, um, you're probably going to need to chase people who have some familiarity with both the job and the team, right? And um, so it was more about getting on the phone and starting to call people who I knew were in different arenas and saying, who are the three or four best people you can think of? And then calling other people and saying that and, and sort of just compiling a list and then taking a look at the list and starting to work through the list um, and saying, well, which ones from these folks do we think um, might have an interest, um, would be a good fit, you know, that type of thing. And then, and then literally interviewing until, um, and doing reference checks and not traditional reference checks, more like, because usually when you ask somebody for a traditional reference check, they give you three or four people who love them, right? right? So this was more about finding people who had worked with these folks um, or who knew them and could give you kind of what I would describe as a more... Um, a more independent reference. Um, so when you were making those calls, you know, talking to people in, in different sectors to say, who would you recommend? Were you actually making those calls yourself personally or were surrogates doing it? Did it depend on the, the case in question? Uh, it was a little bit of both, although I was doing a lot of it myself. Um, I mean, I said to somebody that if I was 38, this would have been a very different exercise than when you're 58. I mean, I've been around for a long time. I know a lot of people. I've been in this town for most of my professional career. And, um, and so for me, on some level, it was, um, I think, easier to cast a pretty broad net than it would have been 20 years ago. Um, the, the other thing I would say is that one of the things you want to do when you go through that process is try and find, and we got lucky on this, try and find some people who will send a message potentially to other people that you're thinking differently about this stuff. So if you think about the first two people we announced, I think it was probably Steve Kadish and Jay Ash. 
Um, now, Steve's somebody I've known for a very long period of time. I've worked with him in a lot of different settings in both the public and private sector. Uh, I think he's a real whiz. And, um, but he's a Democrat, and he's always been a Democrat. He's never made any bones about that. Uh, but he worked in two Republican administrations as well and, um, and knows his way around the public and the private sector. But I knew picking him to be my chief of staff, there are a lot of people who would sort of say, well, that's an unusual choice, all things considered. And then Jay Ash, who is pretty well known and has done a terrific job as the city manager in Chelsea for the past 15 or 16 years and, and was one of a number of people who helped take that city from flat on its back to pretty cool place these days. Um, and, uh, and again, I knew that, that that announcement, I mean, I love the guy and I'm thrilled to have him on the team, but I knew that announcement would send a big message to people that um, we were thinking very differently than people might have thought we would be about this. And that did open some doors to people who were willing to talk to us who might not have been otherwise. Were there any cases in which people close to you said, uh, Governor, we know you're really high on person X, but we just don't think that he or she is right for whatever reason? Where, And I don't know who it would be. I don't know if there was, uh, you know, I don't know if um, Tim Buckley was sitting with you or other people, Jim Conroy, anyone else, Lizzie here, when you were making these choices. But was there a small I guess I'm asking two questions, fumbling my way into two questions. Was there a small group that you vetted your own preferences with? And if so, did they at, ever, at any point ever try to veto or veto a selection that you wanted to make or an offer you wanted to make? Well, everybody um, that I interviewed, Karen Polito interviewed too. I mean, um, and those were all joint decisions, and she and I agreed on pretty much all of them. I should as have we, mentioned the LG, by the as way. We, as, we, as we collected data and information as we went through the process. Um, there were a number of instances in which um, not so much Karen, but other people said, so, don't think this one's such a good idea. Um, and sometimes I listened to that advice and sometimes I didn't, depending upon you know, the quality of what I, my interpretation of the quality of the argument and the quality of the, of the decision making. Um, but I would, I would think most of the people would tell you that it's not that hard to tell me something you don't think I... I mean, I, I'm, you know, perfectly capable of, um, of, of being told I'm wrong. And I think that's a really valuable asset, not just in a public official, but in anybody. You have spent a lot of time on Beacon Hill, but you hadn't been here for a while. What has changed that is meaningful or significant um, in terms of the way Beacon Hill works since the last time you were here? I'm not sure I've been here long enough to know the answer to that question. Um, but one thing that is, I mean, this this will give your, your listeners some idea about how long it's been since I've been on Beacon Hill. Um, when I was on Beacon Hill, there really wasn't email, okay? I mean, smart, most people still didn't have cell phones, now, now I'm sounding like a dinosaur, but it's true. And almost everything was done on buck slips and, you know, uh, little note cards. And, and I got to ask you, because I, I remember those days, but I don't know what a buck slip is. What's a buck slip? A buck slip is a piece of paper that is about this, about a quarter the size of a traditional eight and a half by 11 slip of paper that somebody puts a note on okay. and attaches sort of pink to a report. Yes. And oh no, that's that's just a good old-fashioned, okay. you know. But 
But the whole, you know, so, so one of the big things people were saying to me during the transition was, well, who's going to be at your morning meeting? Because in the old days, being at the morning meeting was like demonstration of power and authority and influence and all the rest. And I said, probably only those who absolutely positively need to be there, to the which of the response was, well, isn't that where everything happens? And I said, in 1991 and 1992, yeah, that pretty much was where everything happened. You know, that's where, in fact, you got the big fat briefing with all the press clips in it for the day. I mean, everything has gone digital and everything has become sort of mobile. So that whole notion with respect, you have to be there to truly engage, just it's not the way the world works anymore. So... I think one of the biggest differences, and I hope this ends up being true going forward, is, you know, in my perfect world, um, we all agree on what it is we're trying to accomplish. Um, and and people spend a lot less time sort of trooping in and out of the state house, and a lot more time doing the work um, of government um, and, and us using the, the dashboards and the metrics and the tools that are available to us to make sure that we're all in agreement on what we're trying to accomplish. We should probably let you go there. You've got work to do. Governor Charlie Baker, thank you for talking with us. Really appreciate it. Thanks. Happy to do it. You know, we tend to think of governors like Deval Patrick, what they are like when they leave office and Deval's swashbuckling and all this. I have to say that while Governor Baker is a very different cat than Deval Patrick, he sounds a little bit like Governor Patrick did to me that first, you know, six or eight mm. weeks that he was governor. Let's not forget, you know, we guys in the press get to sort of shoot spitballs at these people. These guys have real problems they've got to deal with. And I think he, he sounds to me like someone who wants to make sure he doesn't mess anything up. All right. Well, Peter, as I said to Governor Baker, we actually have to wrap up here Next week, we are doing a scrum on the push to keep the Olympics out of Boston. Also on March 15th, the scrum is going to do a little postmortem on the famous, uh, some would say infamous, St. Patrick's Day breakfast in South Boston. We're still figuring out the location. It'll be something around the convention center. But if you're interested, email us, scrum at wgbh.org, and we'll put you on the list. As always, you can find links to the Scrum on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. You can also get us on our website, wgbhnews.org slash scrum. If you like what you hear from the Scrum, please subscribe to it in iTunes. And when you're in iTunes, don't forget to rate and review us so we can continue bringing you more episodes. Special thanks this week to Alan Mattis and Edgar B. Herwick III. Abby Ruzica is our producer. Peter Kadzis, good to see you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News, and we will be back next week. You're going to have me read it again, aren't you? Yeah, but not right now. What, what, what was wrong with that one? It was way too long. If you tell me. It no. was a good riff, though. It was sort of Keeler-esque. Oh, God. It's the last thing I want to be.